So we're continuing this series called The Culture of Discipleship, talking about uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you've been at Servants at all, you know that this is really our heart. Our heart is not to just gather Christians together uh, to, to have meetings or to sing songs. Our desire is to see people follow Jesus and mature in that so they can help other people follow Jesus. We don't want to just have discipleship as kind of a program of the church. We want that to be the identifying characteristic of our church, that we actually are developing a culture of discipleship, that we think discipleship, we speak discipleship, we do discipleship. We want to actually follow Jesus. And we we saw in the first two uh, teachings on this, we saw one that we're following a person, not a program. That we wanted to make it really clear, it's Jesus who we're following. We don't follow just the teachings of this man, though we, of course we do that as well. But we, teach, we follow the, the man himself, the man Christ Jesus, the one mediator between us and God. The one who, whose, whose, life, whose life exemplifies for us how we should live. The one whose death pays for our sins. The one whose resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We want to follow Him. He's alive. We want to walk and follow Him. And then we talked last week about how discipleship, how making disciples, there's, there's an art to it. We talked about how the, the Bible says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works that He's prepared beforehand for us to walk in, that we're His work of art. It's not just about ticking off boxes. We gave kind of four categories that we're going to look at the first one today. We talked about the discipleship is relational. The discipleship is, is transformational, that it's informational, and that it's intentional. We're going to look at each one of those aspects of discipleship in each week. And so we get today, and we want to talk about this reality that discipleship is relational. That the men that Jesus discipled were people that he invested in. He knew these men. He spent the bulk of his three and a half year of, of, of earthly ministry focused on 12 men, men he wanted to pour into, men he got close with, men he loved. And so when we get to this section in John chapter 3, this is of course the upper room discourse, Jesus has just washed these disciples' feet. He has just done that thing that was meant to be reserved for the lowest slave uh, in the house. The one that had the least position, that would be the one that they would have washed feet. And no one had washed their feet, so Jesus takes the place of the lowest position, and he washes their feet, and they're blown away by this. And he says to them, look, as I've done to you, uh, I want you to do to one another. And he begins to talk about the, the reality. He, he weaves into this time, this reality that he's going to be betrayed, and when we pick it up on verse 21 we see this reality of his betrayal hitting him hard. And I think it's really important that we recognize this main command that we see in verse 34 that we all have heard, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says, a new command I give you to love one another, that this command to love one another is sandwiched between two really difficult relationships. It's sandwiched between Jesus relating to the man who's going to betray him and how he loved that man. And Jesus relating to his disciples all who would forsake him, even though they loved him so. And in the middle of that, Jesus gives that command, 
as I have loved you, love one another. And there's a hint there, isn't there? There's, there's a hint there that the kind of relationships that Jesus is calling us to pursue will not be easy relationships. It's not just that the standard is so high, it's that the people that we're called to love are so fallible, like us. It's difficult. I don't know if you've found that sometimes Christian people are even harder to get on with than non-Christian people. I don't know if you've found that. I've found that sometimes. Sometimes Christians can be weird. Sometimes Christians can be awkward. Sometimes Christians can be difficult. And part of that is because we are supposed to be a community of grace, people who want to reach out and love all people. That brings people in who have baggage. I'm one of those people. (laughs) And so sometimes it's hard for us to get on with each other. It's not always easy. And that's why it's really important we recognize when Jesus gives us command, it's sandwiched with these two kinds of difficult relationships. And so I really want to just give three simple main points that I hope to unpack and I hope to connect to why this or how this relates to what we do as Jesus followers and what we do as a church, a servant's church. So the first thing I want you to recognize is that Jesus loved his enemies. Really simple, really clear. Jesus loved his enemies. In verse 21, here's what it says. It says, now, when Jesus had said these things, when he said all the things we just discussed, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, the language that's used here, that John uses here, is very emotive language. It's like Jesus is, is troubled in spirit. He's, he's grieved. They can see the anxiety on his face, so to speak. The pain that he's feeling. They can see that. When it says he testifies, he's, he's speaking in such a way that says, Guys, one of you is going to betray me. He doesn't hide the pain that he's feeling. Jesus is not ignoring the pain that he's going to feel. And this is really important for us to understand. It's important for us because when we talk about following Jesus, we're talking about a man who experienced all the suffering that we experience. He knows every kind of human suffering. This man, who's also the Son of God, whom we worship, has experienced all the suffering we have. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet says about the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the coming Christ, who we know as Jesus, says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their face, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus knows the pain of bad relationships of being misunderstood, of being betrayed. He knows that pain. And it's significant. He didn't hide that pain. Sometimes you go to church and everyone seems to be have a smiling face. How you didn't say, great, good, yeah, great, wonderful, huh? yeah. No one ever wants to share their junk. No one ever wants to be honest about the fact that they're hurting or that they've been hurt. Now, obviously, we know that there are some really clear, specific guidelines about how we communicate about pain. We should never say, well, I'm really hurting because so-and-so said this about me. That's gossip and slander and it's bad. We don't do that. But it's okay for us to acknowledge that we are hurt by people. Because here's the reality. If we can't acknowledge that we've been hurt by people, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have very little compassion for those who are hurting. Jesus didn't hide the fact that he was hurting, that he was going to be betrayed. 
But he also, listen, didn't handle this betrayal and this pain as if he was just a victim. He didn't have a victim mentality. In fact, the author of Hebrews says this about Jesus. Listen, Hebrews 5.8 says, Even though Jesus was God's Son, He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. Jesus knew that God was doing something in Him and through Him through the things He suffered. When it says He learned obedience, it doesn't mean that He was ever disobedient. It just means He grew in obedience. He matured or perfected what obedience was like through the things that he suffered, specifically through the way he suffered at the hands of other men. It's important that we understand that when we talk about loving your enemies, you really, you know what you have to have if you're going to love your enemies? You have to have enemies. <laughs> you have to have people who actually treat you bad. We don't actually help people when we are so flippant about the things they do to us. Sometimes we're so afraid of conflict, we're so afraid of ruffling anyone's feathers, we don't want to admit when they hurt our feelings. No, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's okay, it's fine. But what we do, we we stay way far away from that person. That's not love. Now there are things that are, you know, we probably sense they're kind of petty, I shouldn't be so bothered by those things, that we just absorb those things and let them go. But there are other things where people actually do hurt us. I, I, I wish I, I can't even count how many times I have sinned with my mouth. Sometimes I'll, I'll goof off with my kids. Noel and I have this very dark, destructive kind of humor in common. And so we'll tease about things sometimes. And then like every once in a while, she'll go, Dad, you just crossed the line. <laughs> you know? And I'll have to repent right there. And it's, it's easy to sin with our mouths. And it's important for us when, we hurt, when we're hurt by another believer that we're not afraid to say, you know, actually, that, that hurts. Jesus didn't hide the pain. It's part of loving people. But he also knew God was doing something great as he absorbed that pain, as he took that. Now, we get to verse 22, and, and it's interesting. What do we see in verse 22? In verse 22, Jesus, the disciples, it says, they look at each other. And they're perplexed about this. They're, they're going, what? One of us? No way. And it says that now, you know, as, as there was leaning on Jesus' breast, uh, uh, bosom one of uh, his disciples, this is probably John, who calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. That's not an arrogant statement. That's a statement of humility. He recognizes his identity is not even in his name. It's in the fact that he's loved by Jesus. But he kind of, Simon Peter kind of motions to him, and I, and I love this. I, I had a graphic that I was going to put on the screen. Sorry, it's not there. But basically, you may or may not know that when they were eating, this is around the Last Supper when they're eating, it wasn't like in the Da Vinci painting where they're all kind of facing one direction, uh, you know, on a table. They would be in like kind of a U-shaped table that would maybe be about a foot off the ground. And they would be leaning on their left elbow with their head toward the table and their feet stuck out. Which is why when Jesus got up from that, at that table and washed their feet, their feet were sticking out. He didn't like go under the table to wash their feet, okay? Their feet would be sticking out to the side. And so you get this idea that Jesus is kind of in the place of honor. He's in the center. And then you got John sort of right next to him where he could kind of lean back and say something to Jesus really quietly and privately. And maybe Peter was right across the way kind of making eye shot with John going, Ask him. Who was it? Ask him. You know? Peter always pushing for stuff. And so he does this. He pushes for an answer. He wants to know who is it. And it's interesting because when, when John asks him who is it, the other Gospels tell us that actually these guys all thought it could have been any one of them. 
We read in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, verse, verses 21 and 22, that now when they were eating, Jesus said, Surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? These disciples were totally aware of their ability to fail Jesus. <laughs> they knew they would fail. And they were afraid, Lord, we, we don't want to fail this way. I want you to think about this too. What does this say about the way Jesus loved all 12 disciples? There was no indication by Jesus' actions that he knew who was going to betray him. But we know that he knew who was going to betray him. In other words, he treated his enemies the same way he treated his friends. Think about that. He loved that way. Now we get to verse 26. And Jesus, of course, says to John, and, and it seems like even from the context, John didn't get what Jesus was saying at the time, but maybe he looks back and knows what Jesus is doing now. But it says in verse 26, Jesus answers, and he says, it is to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And he dipped the bread and he gave it to Jesus Iscariot, the son of Simon. And he says to Judas, it's, or it says in verse 27, now after the piece of bread, uh, uh, Satan entered him, that is, entered Judas Iscariot. Now, we know from the first part of, of, of John chapter 13, verse 2, that it says in 13, 2, that after supper had ended, that the, the devil already put into the heart of Jesus Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. So we know Satan was already working. He was already kind of planting this thought in Judas' head. Now, we don't know exactly what Judas' motivation was. I mean, part of it was the money. There's no doubt that was part of it. But we, we have a sense that maybe Jesus' motivation in betraying Jesus was because he thought, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's doing it wrong. He's got to be a, a kind of the Messiah we want him to be. So if we force his hand, he'll, go, he'll start, you know, he'll turn into the Hulk or something, and he'll just destroy the Romans, and, every, and then we'll win. You know, then Israel will take over. We'll kind of force his hand to be the Messiah we know we want him to be. That could have been what his motivation is. But that thought, as much as you might be able to justify that thought, that thought was, according to Scripture, demonic. It was satanic. And one of the things that we need to understand is, and this is the thing that I think we see with these disciples, that they were completely naive about Satan's influence and about how the enemy of their souls would influence them specifically wanting to corrupt their relationship with God through Jesus and corrupt their relationship to one another. This is what Paul would write later on. The Apostle Paul would write later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. You know, Paul says to the Corinthian church, you know what, you guys, I'm worried for you because I don't think you even see how the enemy's blinding you, and you're beginning to worship a, a different Jesus and believe a different gospel and get involved with a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. The enemy's deceiving you. But here's what's really interesting. We, we, us in, the, in a church like ours, we take the Bible seriously. We know this stuff. Yes, there's bad doctrine out there. We want to protect. We don't want to be in bad doctrine. We want to be in good doctrine. Let's stick to good doctrine. But you know what? There's something more to this. Something more to the way that, that, that Satan tries to deceive God's people because earlier in 2 Corinthians, here's what Paul wrote. 
Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. Now, if you remember the context, in 1 Corinthians, Paul had uh, chastised. He had kind of told off the Corinthians because they were allowing someone in their presence who was saying he was a believer who was actually sleeping with his stepmom. So this guy's having sexual relations with his stepmother. And they're going, well, there's grace. You know, we're such a church of grace. And they were kind of just winking at it, not making a deal. And he says, that dude's got to go. If he's not repentive, kick him out. And so basically they kicked him out. But then they were kind of like, oh, man, we really blew it. So that when this guy eventually did repent, and he's like, man, I was wrong, they're not sure about taking him back. And Paul's going, no, 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 you have to take him back. If he's repented, Christ's blood covers that. He needs to be forgiven. And so that's why Paul says, when I forgive this man, uh, or when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. Notice he says, and when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. Notice, to that, uh, so that, it should say, uh, Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. What's Satan's evil scheme? How does he want to outsmart us? Don't forgive each other. Let your relationships fall apart. That's his evil scheme. Guys, listen. It's not a coincidence that you who are married, you get in a fight every time you come to church. It's not a coincidence. There's, there's tension. The kids seem to be demon-possessed as you're going to church. They're not, don't worry. But there is, we have an enemy who harasses us. This is one of the reasons we exhort you and really encourage you to say, prepare Saturday night to come this Sunday morning. Know what, what your kids' clothes need and what you need and know what you're going to have for breakfast and for lunch afterwards. And be ready so you're not like running around like a crazy person come Sunday morning. And be prayed up. God, would you speak to your people tomorrow? Would you help me to serve your people tomorrow? You prepare. Why? Because the enemy wants to get in the way. You know one of the subtle ways the enemy lies to us at Servants Church? I've heard this before, and I, and I this might sound strong, but I mean this. One of the ways I believe the enemy lies to us at Servants Church is when he whispers in our ear, that 20-minute break is a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. It's an opportunity for us to love like Jesus loves it's an opportunity to, uh, for us to come together and declare His worthiness by learning to be committed to each other, by learning to know each other. The enemy's a liar, and he wants there to be division between us. He wants us to not forgive our friends, our spouses, our parents. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to just divide Families and churches and relationships. And, the, and according to John 13, the disciples at this point were a bit ignorant of this. They didn't see it. The point is this. Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus maintained relationships with undeserving people. When he commands us to love one another, when he says this is an aspect of you following me, you being a Jesus follower means you love like I love. That includes loving undeserved, deserving people. Look to the person next to you and say, you don't deserve my love. Now you don't want to say, do you? You're like, because you're British and you're scared to do anything like that at all. Yes, I understand. No, don't say that. 
Some of you guys said it really way too quickly. That's right, you don't deserve my love. Way too fast. The thing is, guess what? None of us deserve the love of God. And the love that God calls us to demonstrate is not our love for people, it's His love for people. And that's always given to the undeserving. Now, then Jesus gives this command in verse 31. Or then he says this in verse 31, getting ready to give this main command. He says, so when, when Judas had gone out, he says, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself, glorify him in himself, sorry, and glorify him immediately. There's a lot of glory in there, isn't there? Two things I want you to notice. He says, now and immediately. He's saying something's just happened that is beginning to mean the glory of God's going to be demonstrated. What's just happened? Judas has just gone off to betray Jesus. It's set in motion, Jesus' betrayal and his, his, his beating and his crucifixion. Now, we have to understand also what glory is. You guys, if you've been at Servants World, you know this is the definition I always give for glory. Listen, glory, the glory of something is the unique value of that thing. That's what glory is. It's the unique value of something. So there's a proverb, Proverbs 29. I don't know if I have it on the heat. Yeah, I do. Proverbs 20, 29 says, uh, The glory of a young man is their strength. The splendor of an old man is their gray head. So what it's talking about there is that when you're young, what you have unique is you're about as strong as you're going to get. I'm past that stage, unfortunately. And when you're old, the glory you have is that you have a gray head of hair, or in my case, a gray beard because I have no hair up there. And that's supposed to show a sign of wisdom. So as you get old, you have life experience and and hopefully wisdom. He's making a general statement about the unique value of youth and the unique value of age, okay? So what's the unique value of God? Because Jesus is saying, listen, He's saying here that he's, being motiva- he's motivated by God's glory. He wants God's glory to be seen. He wants God's glory, the unique value of who, God's, who God is, to be demonstrated. Listen to this. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Some of you guys probably have this memorized, right? But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what's unique about our God who's love? Every, everyone knows that God is love. Everyone, people who aren't believers know God is love. But they think that means whatever love is, is what God is. But that's not what that means. What it means is who God is defines what love is. And our God, our triune God, is this perfect loving being that's always existed. And this love is unique in that this love doesn't stay self-contained. God in who is love, decides to demonstrate his love by creating a universe where we see his glory. And then this God, who is love, becomes, puts on humanity, clothes himself in human flesh, pierces human history, and dies a substitutionary death for people who hate him. People who are his enemies. That's what's unique about that love. Jesus says, this is what it's about. I want to show the love of God. He's excited about God being glorified, the unique value of God being seen, and it's seen in its clearest and purest way through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He wants God's value to be seen. 
This is really important for us. We are not interested in people thinking that Servants Church is just a great church. If that happens, people go, oh, that's a good church. I really like Servants Church. Oh, they have great coffee. You know, the sermon's a little long, but that's all right. We like the music, good kids ministry, really cool facility. Yeah, Servants Church is a good church. That is not bringing glory to God by itself. What brings glory to God, what shows God's unique value is when we as God's people, by the power of God's Spirit, love the way He does. That we love the way He does. Now, it's, it's interesting because He says this, and then it says He uses this phrase to address the disciples in verse 33. Look what He says in verse 33. He says, little children. I say, I'll be with you a little while. Like I said to the Jews, I'm going somewhere you can't go, so now I'm saying to you. But he addresses them, little children. Now, now don't forget, Jesus is about 33, maybe 34 at the most at this time. These guys are all probably in their late teens, early 20s. The disciples were probably all in their late teens, early 20s. Total side note, but isn't it interesting how... Uh, we think you, you, you can't really use somebody in ministry until they get really old. Jesus picked 12 really young people, so I don't know what that means. You figure it out. And he's calling them little children. I, I don't know about you, but when I was like 20, 21, if a 30-year-old said, little child, I'd be like, what? I'm a man. Don't call me a little child. But what he's doing here and what they received and appreciate is he's, listen, he's communicating to them He's demonstrating to them the affection of family. This is how Jesus is loving these guys. He's communicating them as, 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 a, as a parent would to their child. You know, I have pet names for my kids. And it's funny because every once in a great while, someone will address one of my kids by my pet name for them. And I think, ah, da, da, da. That's my pet name for my kid, not yours. There's something about, you know, I, 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 I love people. I really love being with people. I love people. I love babies. In case you haven't noticed, I love babies, okay? I love kids. I love babies. But my kids are my kids. And there's something special there that is beyond any other kid. That there's something unique there. There's a family element there. Now, we love people to be, feel like they're part of the family when they come over for a meal. We love that. We love to be hospitable. We want people to feel welcomed and loved. But there is still something about our family that is our family. In case you hadn't noticed, I've invited none of you to our family holiday in July. <laughs> because you're not that biological family. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus is using this term on purpose. You know why? Because he wants them to understand something about their relationship, that it's a family relationship. You know, it really wouldn't be necessarily, it wouldn't necessarily be inappropriate for me to invite you to my family holiday. I can't afford to take you, so please don't ask. But it wouldn't necessarily be important because guess what? If you're in Christ, you're my family. For those of us that, are, that have put our faith in Jesus, we are now brothers and sisters forever. I want you to think about that for a second. How is that expressed in the way you love each other? 
How do you demonstrate family affection to the people that are in this building right now? Now, I know when it comes to affection, we all have kind of different boundaries. Some people are really huggy. Some people aren't huggy at all. We understand that. We want to be sensitive to each other about that kind of thing. But there should still be a moving towards a family affection among believers where we actually treat each other like family. Let's be honest, we bicker like family. (laughs) So we should pursue a love like family and affection like family. Jesus is doing this, and it's important that he recognize he's doing this because he's just about to say that we are to love the way he loved. And he demonstrated that kind of family commitment. The Bible says this in, uh, where is it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verse 12, it says this, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that's one in four places in the New Testament where it says do that. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to kiss you, don't get freaked out. but you know what a holy demonstration of affection is a good thing now maybe with a lot of people it's just it's a touch on the shoulder maybe that's as far as they're comfortable that's that's cool but there should still be a a a family connection that we have with each other that we should pursue we should still desire that this is part of loving each other The Bible says this about who we are. This is our identity now. It says, remember back from Ephesians, so now Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You you are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. This is how we are. Jesus demonstrated that familial connection. We're called to demonstrate the same connection. God calls us to that. Yeah, we fall short. Yeah, it's really tough to do that with 150 people. It really is. But you can do it with some people, can't you? And I'll tell you what, too. You know what brings glory to God? When we do it with people that we wouldn't normally do it with. People that are in a different stage of life or have a different social background or a different educational status or of a different ethnicity. It's when we love people that are different than us because they are the same as us because they are brothers and sisters in Christ that God's glorified. He calls us to this kind of love. And he gives his command, notice, he says, a new commandment, he says, I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, Jesus is being really clear about this. He's he's saying, listen, I'm not just giving you an authoritative command. I'm setting the standard about how that command's supposed to be fulfilled. So Jesus isn't just talking about being nice. He's talking about loving the way he loved. He's calling us to this. Next week, we're going to talk about how discipleship is transformational. In other words, it's dependent upon the supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that next week. And I hope when you hear this statement, I'm supposed to love like Jesus, that you go, oh God, I cannot do that unless you do something. I hope you feel that way. And I hope you get on your face before God and say, God, you have to give me love for your people. And you have to give me strength to love your people. Because that's the standard he sets. He says, I'm calling you to love the way I love. But not only that, listen. He says in verse 35, By this, all will know. In other words, you'll be identified as my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, you need to understand something. 
Jesus is saying what identifies us as believers is how we love other believers. Sometimes we think, oh, we're just supposed to love everybody. But you know what? When we say we're supposed to love everybody, you know what that often is? It's an excuse to not really love anybody. Because if we say we love everybody, that just means we just try to be nice to everybody. But when we're called, we're called to love, Jesus loved 12 guys intently. He loved people. He so loved God, so loved the world, he sent Jesus. We know that. But Jesus committed himself to these men. He committed himself to these men, men who are diverse, men who are sinners, men who are broken, men who are difficult, men who he had to correct, men who are frustrating. There's times when you read in the Gospels, Jesus says, how long do I have to bear with you? You know what that means? A modern translation would say, you're driving me nuts. (laughs) That's basically saying, you're driving me nuts. Well, come on. He loved them as family. God calls us to live the same way. Interesting, too, there are 31 distinct one another commands in the New Testament. Right? Some of them are up there. So just a few up there. They, there's, it says love one another several times, but here are some examples. You're members of one another. In other words, there's a connection. You need to recognize the connection. We're called to be kindly affectionate to one another and in honor prefer one another. We're called not to judge one another. We're called that through love we would serve one another. We're called to bear the burdens of one another. We're called to be kind and forgiving to one another. We're called to more highly esteem others or one another. To confess our faults and pray for one another. We're called to be hospitable toward one another. We're called to be submissive. It's misspelled, sorry. But to be submissive toward one another. All these things are summed up in loving one another. And there are 30, 31 of them distinct in the New Testament, and they're all commands. Why? Because to be a Jesus follower is to to move towards that kind of commitment toward one another. Now, the ways a lot of churches try to make this happen is they have what's called church membership. This is not me... uh, Sorry. This is not me disrespecting church membership. Uh, I don't see a biblical basis for church membership, to be honest, but a lot of churches have church membership. And the, the desire is to get people to be committed to one another. That desire is a good desire. But what I've found in my experience is signing a piece of paper doesn't make you any more commitment to, to one another. But we're still called to be committed to one another. Jesus calls us to this kind of committed relationship. Jesus was uniquely committed to his 12 disciples. He calls us to follow him the same way. So discipleship is relational. Jesus loved his enemies. That's the first point. Second point, discipleship is relational. Jesus commanded committed relationships. He commands this. It's not an option for us. He commands us to to pursue these kind of committed relationships. And lastly, Jesus faithfully wounds his friends. Let me say that again so you understand what I'm saying. Jesus faithfully wounds, W-O-U, and D.S. wounds his friends. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 36. We're almost done. Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, uh, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you, will, you shall follow me afterwards. Do you see what Peter's doing? Peter's much more interested in Jesus' presence than his command. Jesus gave a really intense command. I want you to love the way I love. Jesus, Peter's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are you going? 
I, I, I want to make sure that we're still close. Peter is doing what we do all the time. He's separating in his mind what it means to be in the presence of Jesus and what it means to obey Jesus. All those are two separate things, but they're not. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Jesus answers and says to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, uh, we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus says, connected, interconnected, is our obedience to God and our experience of the presence of God. Now, Jesus made a promise to us, didn't he? He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So I'm not saying every time you, you fail that he bails. <laughs> I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this, okay? If we really want to be with Jesus, then that involves us doing what he says. That's the fourth bit, right? Love, uh, discipleship is intentional. that we, It obeys God's commands. Peter's making the same mistake we make. He's trying to separate those two things. I just want to experience the Lord, he's saying. I just, Jesus, I just want you near me. We do that. Jesus says, okay, you want me near you? You want to experience the Father? Do what I say. Love this way. Love this way. Then he says in, it says in verse 37, that, so Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Now, I think Peter was being sincere. I think Peter was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. He was willing to fight for Jesus. We know this because in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he do? The soldiers come, Peter takes a sword and misses, but, you know, he's trying to get a guy's head, hits it, chops off his ear, but he, he strikes one of the soldiers. Pretty brazen thing to do. So he was willing to fight. But also what we see with Peter is, same thing again we see with us, he's demonstrating this, what I might call the folly of overconfidence. Lord, come on, I, you know I'm going to follow you. Do you ever, you know, some of the songs that we sing, you ever sing those songs and feel like, I don't know if I can sing this? Like, I will always, you know, what's the song? I, just, I lost the, the lyric in my head, but the, some of the songs we sing were like, I will always be faithful to you. I'm like, uh, I want to always be faithful to you. <laughs> I'm not too confident that I'm always going to do what I'm supposed to do. But Peter, at this point, was horribly overconfident. Listen to what Proverbs tells us about confidence. Listen to this. Proverbs 26, 16 says, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages on and is, New King James says, self-confident. Later on in the same chapter, it says, In the fear of the Lord, there's a strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. Do you see the difference? Self-confidence. I'm going to just do it. I'm going to just push through. I'm going to make this happen. Foolish, Scripture says. Strong confidence. God, I, I, whatever you say, I just, it's your opinion that matters. I fear you. That's where I'm going to find a strong confidence. That's where I'm going to find refuge. Interesting, too, that Luke's gospel tells us before Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me. Here's what, here's what Jesus, or Jesus says to Peter. Luke 22, 31 and 32, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I, I love this because Jesus is saying, Peter, you need to know <laughs> Satan's coming after you, buddy, and you're gonna fail, but I've prayed for you, and if Jesus prays for you, guess what? There's gonna be victory, Amen. He says, I prayed for you so that when you are restored, not if, when, when you are restored, I want you to strengthen your brethren. 
And that's when Peter says what we see here. Lord, why, why can I not follow you? Lord, I'll lay down my life for you, according to Luke's gospel. You see, Jesus is not afraid to point out Peter's weaknesses. That's exactly what he says in verse 38. It, Jesus answered to him and said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most certainly I say to you, he says, the rooster's gonna crow, well, well shall not crow, till you've denied me three times. Peter, are you really gonna do this? Are you really so cocky that you think you're gonna always do it right? Really, dude, seriously. You're gonna, you're gonna really mess up big time tonight. But the Lord had already given him a promise that I'm gonna restore you. What's this got to do with love? As I said, the main point is Jesus faithfully wounds his friends. Listen to what the Proverbs again say. Listen, Proverbs 27, 6 and 7. Great verses to have in your mind if you want to be a good friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but a hungry soul, or to a hungry soul, every bitter uh, thing is sweet. See, see here's... here's why I put those two Proverbs together, not just because they come right back to back. I think they're back to back for a reason, but listen. Jesus is wounding Peter. He's willing to love him enough to say, Peter, no, you're, you're not as strong as you think you are. Because what Jesus wants Peter to do is Jesus wants Peter to trust him, not trust himself. Do you understand? Jesus wants Peter to trust Jesus, not trust Peter. That's what he wants for him. And so he's willing to wound. He loves Peter enough to risk Peter's allegiance to him to make sure he knows what's best for him. That's loving one another. How many of you guys have been in a church, you've been part of a church where they practiced church discipline? They actually would remove somebody if they were unrepentive. A few of you. If you've been at servants for uh, more than five or six years, that would include you because we've had to do that a couple times. It is a horrible, long, painful, difficult process. It's really hard. We never remove people because of sin. We, because if we did that, no, none of us would be here. <laughs> we, all, we remove people because of unrepentance and an unwillingness to actually turn from habitual sin. Why do we do that? It's love. This is how Jesus loves Jesus loves us enough to correct us. Listen, I need you guys to challenge me. I'm so thankful that for the relationship that I have specifically with certain men in this church. Adam and Neil. Paul Dean I've known for donkey's years. He's been here since the very beginning. And these are our men who will challenge me. I'm thankful for the relationship that I've had with Stephen, though I'm old enough to be Stephen's dad, which he likes to remind me of. Stephen isn't afraid to, usually respectfully, challenge me if he disagrees with something. No, what about this, though? I'm thankful for that. Guess why? I get it wrong. And I need people to love me well enough to make sure that I'm walking with Jesus the way I should, that I'm actually trusting Jesus and not trusting in myself. My wife loves me this way. 90% of the time, she's just quiet. Okay, that's where you're going to be. Walks away, prays, God, deal with them. <laughs> but occasionally, she knows she needs a stern word. I need a stern word. So she will say to me in private, Honey, this is not right, and this is why. 
I need to be loved that way. You need to be loved that way. We need to be a people that love that way. That we're so committed to each other that we will risk the awkwardness of confrontation to say what's going on. Some of the things that Adam asks me, guys, are painful to be asked, and they're painful for him to ask. But if he didn't, I would be in a bad place. The reality is we need to love this way. Jesus is calling us to be a people that love this way. We are so committed to each other that the, the thing that we want most is to see one another be presented to God as that perfect spotless bride. And so we're helping each other that way. And then that commitment doesn't just mean I'm going to point out your sins. It means I'm going to say, hey, I'm concerned about this. This is what's going on. Can I walk with you in this? If, if you want to, if you see something in somebody's life, here's the first thing you need to do. You need to check, the, check out your own eye. Make sure there's not a beam sticking out of it. It's the first thing you need to do. Because sometimes we project our junk onto somebody else. So make sure you're not projecting your junk onto somebody else. But if you've prayed through that and you've, you've removed any beam from your eye and you still see something there, pray that God gives you wisdom and the grace to be able to actually walk with that person because just exposing them is no good. Are you going to walk with that person? Are you going to love that brother or sister and say, look, I'm committed to you. Let's go through this together. I've struggled with this in the past. I can still struggle with this now. Let's walk through this together. Are you willing to do that? That's committed love. That's real discipleship. Jesus loved people enough to correct them. Now, you were probably thinking when we said that the subject's relational that we're going to talk about how great it is to have loving, caring relationships in the church, and it is great. It really is great. I am closer to my Christian brothers and sisters than I am to anybody else, and I have a close family. I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a monthly bring-in chair. I make you wear those goofy name tags because we want you to get to know each other. We want you to have an opportunity to know, okay, Lord, who's going who, to be, gonna be the Paul to me, the Timothy, and who am I going to be the Paul to the Timothy to? Who am I going to get to know? How am I going to be known? Who's going to know my junk? Whose junk am I going to know? Who am I going to walk with? Now, practically, we're not going to do that with all 150 people, but we can do it with a group, can't we? This is why we encourage you to be a part of a small group. You would commit to a small group that you would, let, you would be known and know in those small groups. It takes time. It didn't happen overnight. Sometimes you have one meal with somebody, and it's like, man, we just hit it off. We're buddies forever. Sometimes it takes years before you actually trust each other. So Pip and I work out, well, usually twice a week. This week we didn't work out at all, but usually twice a week. And we pray together. And we have, a good, we have a good time. We push each other. We pray pretty honestly. But I think Pip would agree with me that it's taken a long time for us to get really honest in our prayers. It's been pretty honest. We weren't lying, but you're kind of just giving the safe prayer request to each other. It's getting a little bit more exposing as we get to know each other better and trust each other more. It takes time. We need these kind of relationships, people. Jesus calls us to these kind of relationships. If we're going to follow him, we need to approach relationships this way. 